there appeared to be a lot of joy that first Palm Sunday morning. Shouting, singing, dancing, waving of branches, a kind of carnival atmosphere. There was hope in the air. It was springtime. The children and families were out on the streets. There was much to celebrate, or so it seemed. But what happened? Where did it go? Was it real? What difference did it make anyway? Well, not much, actually. By Wednesday, it was all beginning to wane and fall apart. By Friday, it was over. Whatever the joy of Palm Sunday, it was shallow, skin deep. It didn't last. It was certainly not the kind of joy that Jesus offers his disciples in these verses before us this morning. What he offers them here is a joy of an altogether different kind. And after last week, when we listened in to what Jesus was saying to those first disciples about hardship and persecution, the disciples might have been forgiven, forgiven for thinking that this Christian life, this following Jesus, was all about weeping and wailing. But as we heard in those testimonies from around the world, for them, life in Christ was a life that they had found, a life that was over and above, a life that seemed in many ways untouched by the cruelty of their circumstance. The life in Christ, for those people in very difficult parts of our world, was marked by joy. It's this joy that Jesus offered these first disciples and offers us still. Verse 22, I hope you have your Bibles uh, still open and you can follow the verses with me. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. The world gives us trouble. Jesus gives us peace. The world's troubles will come to an end. The joy from heaven will last forever. Jesus was the man of sorrows. And as we uh, gather momentum through this Holy Week, we will remember that especially on Friday. But we must not forget that the man of sorrows was also the man that was marked by joy and gladness. In fact, when the writer to the Hebrews comments on Jesus' life, he gives one description, one reason why Jesus was different from all his companions. Now, we, we could have a straw poll this morning and we could think of many, many reasons why Jesus was different from all those around him. But the writer of the Hebrews chooses this one. God has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. What made Jesus stand out from his companions? He had joy like none other. And we know of Jesus, it was the joy that Father God had set before him that ultimately enabled him to endure the cross and scorn its shame. This is a different kind of joy altogether. This is joy at the defeat of evil. This is joy that does not synchronize with the world and all its prevailing moods. This is a joy that irresistibly seeks and finds, chases after us in our pain. An undying joy that has already stepped beyond death to welcome us there. It was this kind of joy that Jesus anticipated that his followers would know. Paul, the great apostle, when he's in prison for preaching Christ, says, I'll continue to rejoice because God is still at work and I am in Christ. 
It was a joy that Jesus understood and his first disciples understood could flourish even in the face of trial. Pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. It was a joy, (coughs) excuse me, as we looked at a fortnight ago, that comes out of being in God's will and purpose. I've told you this, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. That's the legacy, or at least part of the legacy that Jesus has left us, his followers. A legacy of joy. On a scale of 1 to 10, how much joy is there in your life? Whatever your personal answer to that question, how much joy is there in your life, Christians as a group in our society are not exactly known for their uncontainable joy. Lord Hope, uh, the former Archbishop of York, uh, uh, writing just last year in the Times, he says, you get a different view when you're in the bishop's chair. Sometimes when I've been up at the front like a beached whale, I've looked at the faces before me and thought, what a bunch of miserable sinners. It looks as if they're going to awake. Where is the joy that so marked out the first Christians? Where is the joy? And we might ask the same question of our lives, where is the joy? So let's think about this legacy of joy that Jesus left with his disciples. The first thing we have here is joy. joy. Uh, In terms of these principles of joy, the first one is this. It's a principle from Christ for us to grasp. So joy is principle to grasp. Look at verses 20 to 22 uh, with me for a moment. I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And then he goes on to illustrate it. He says it's like this. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because the time has come, but when a baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of a joy that that child is born into the world. So with you. Jesus is illustrating how they will have joy not because there is no sadness or struggle in their lives and in their world, but they will have joy that comes out of the pain and the struggle and the strife that there is in the world. It will be joy that comes through transformation. And to illustrate it, he talks about a woman in labor. Joy comes, he says, out of the pain. The same baby that causes the pain also brings the joy. Ask any woman in the final stages of labor, are you going to have any more children? Try it, if you dare. But maybe a little while later, a day or so at least, I would trust, The mother who's held and fed and loved and dressed and cuddled her newborn baby and had a little sleep. Will you have another one? I think we will. I think we will. Out of the pain comes joy. And so it is in the Christian life. God takes seemingly impossible situations, adds the miracle of his grace and transforms trial into triumph and sorrow into joy. So with these disciples, their weeping, Jesus said, will be replaced by an inexpressible joy, for that's the way it is in God's kingdom. Out of the greatest sorrow, through the grace of God and his transforming power, can come great joy. 
even out of the severest trials, even out of the struggles that are going on in your world and my world. And maybe when we find that really hard to believe, we should think back to some of those testimonies last week, for that's exactly what they were saying. Out of these incredibly difficult situations, the joy of being in Christ still flourishes. Remember their story. But maybe even more importantly, as we begin this Easter journey, remember the story that Easter tells us about God. This is Holy Week. It's the week of God's supreme, unparalleled activity in creation. And the people of God, during this Holy Week, will experience the greatest sorrow and the highest joy. Hang with me with it for a moment. Think about Mary, not on Palm Sunday, but think about Mary early Easter Sunday morning. Imagine her waking up on that morning. You see, the city was alive with pilgrims. For everybody else, it was party time. Yet for Mary, a party was the very last thing on her mind. The last days for Mary had brought nothing to celebrate. The Jews could celebrate. Jesus was out of the way. The soldiers could celebrate. Their work of crucifixion and all its gruesome detail was over. The pilgrims, well, they were still celebrating. This was Passover time. But Mary, no. For her, it was the third most tragic day of her life. She'd been there through this last week. She'd heard the leaders clamour for Jesus' blood. She'd seen the Roman whip take flesh off his back. She'd wince as they pressed the crown of thorns onto his brow. She'd wept as she saw for herself the weight of the cross. In the Louvre, there's a painting of the scene of the cross. The stars are dead and the world is wrapped in darkness. And there's a kneeling form. It's Mary holding on to the feet of the dying Christ. Surely she was there. She was there to hold Mary, the mother of Jesus. She was there to close Jesus' eyes. The Sabbath, of course, had kept her away. But now, very early on the Sunday, she gets up. She'd probably been awake half the night. Grief does things like that. And she takes her spices and alloys and leaves her house. She goes out through the gate of Genethus and up the hill. She wants to be there with him just maybe one more time. And she anticipates a somber task. The body will now be swollen. His face will be white. The smell of death will be ever so real. But our story is not just about Mary. It's also about the 11 disciples who were equally in chaos. Their master is gone, their friend has left them, their plans are wrecked, their hopes are shattered, baffled, perplexed, and very afraid. They're huddled together behind locked doors. The only thing they can anticipate is that the Jews will come for them as well. The cross had blasted their hopes, the grave had buried them forever. But it wasn't just Mary, and it wasn't just the eleven, it was a whole bunch of ordinary people, just like you and me, for whom the darkness of those past few days had blackened their very soul. And we hear the story in Luke's Gospel about two ordinary people. One was called Cleopas, the other his friend, maybe his wife, we don't know, we're not told. And we see them dragging their feet, plodding home to Emmaus. It's springtime, they can't hear the birds singing. They can't see the awakening of nature. With lagging feet and laden skies, they continue their journey home. From a funeral, they'd laid their dear one to rest. 
His life cut short for them in tragic circumstance and they cannot help themselves in their conversation to go over and over and over and over with one another the tragedy of the last few days. And as they do, a stranger pulls up alongside them. And they can't stop their conversation. They start talking to this stranger about all that's happened. You would not believe it. They're trying to come to terms with what they've heard and they've seen. And these two begin to explain to the stranger, we've lost a friend. In fact, more than that, we've lost a prophet. A man who was godly and powerful in word and deed. And no more than that, they went on to say, we've lost. And with their next words, they expressed the, the whole hope of Jesus' followers. We've lost the one in whom we had placed our hope. He was our only hope. We were counting on him for our lives, for our nation, for our salvation. And now he's dead. A picture of utter despair. Mary stumbling to the tomb in her grief, the eleven frozen in fright behind closed doors, and these ordinary people, helpless, hopelessly, walking home to Emmaus, nowhere else to go. Was there not so much as a ray of hope shining through the darkness? No. Was there not so much a half-conscious expectation that somehow light would arise out of this dark, deathly hope? No. Just despair. Ordinary folk who'd known darkness overwhelming them. And maybe you can identify with them this morning. Maybe that's how your life feels. Overwhelmed by the sheer darkness of it all. Maybe you've been there before. But you know what it's like. But we must remember the story doesn't end there. For God in his grace was about to transform their situation. Why? Because that's what God is like. Centuries before the psalmist had understood the principle of the kingdom, weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. See, we all know about weeping. We all know about tears that last a lot longer than a night time. But we need this truth as well. God's purpose is to turn your weeping into rejoicing, your mourning into dancing, your pain into inexpressible joy. Why? Because that's what God is like. And on Easter Sunday, isn't that exactly what he did for each and every one of us? And if all you can see today is your pain, and if all you can hear is the sound of your own tears, then look again with me. Look with the eyes of faith and see Mary, the tear-stained face of Mary, transformed into a radiant glow as she sees the would-be gardener call her name. And believe it for yourself. See the heaviness of despair that filled the room of the eleven instantly evaporate as the Prince of Peace appeared and flooded their room, what for them had become a prison of fear. And believe it for yourself. See the two ordinary folk on the road to Emmaus. See them now, not plodding uh, a wearily home, but running, skipping, jumping, racing back to Jerusalem with the news that they've seen him and he's alive. And believe it for yourself. This is... God's way. It always has been. It's the principle of the kingdom. Way back in Deuteronomy, the book that we wade through with a heavy heart, the Lord thy God turned the course into a blessing. That's what God does. That's what he's like. The psalmist again, you've turned my wailing into dancing. You've removed my sackcloth and clothed me with 
joy. Who is the you in that verse? Who has done that for the writer? Who has turned his wailing into dancing? We're in church. If you say God, there's a high likelihood that the answer will be right. Go with your gut instinct. Why? That's what God is like. That's how he's revealed himself. The one who comes to change our darkness into light, our pain into joy, uh, and so on and so forth. If you still can't believe it, think about Joseph. Joseph, sold in slavery, imprisoned by Potiphar, transformed by God. Think about David, constantly under murderous threats from King Saul that only made David even more into the man of God. And this Easter, think about Jesus, who faced the cross, a symbol of defeat and shame, and transformed it into a place of victory and glory. Embrace the one who transforms grief into joy that will last. And hey, this is not something just for the first disciples, but for you and me. Peter wrote, writing to some people who didn't know Jesus personally while he was on earth, and he says, though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. 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 His principle to grasp. Secondly, joy his presence to know. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. They will see him and know him and they will be confident that no one or no thing can take away this joy because he will be with them and even death will not be able to rob them of his presence. And it's just the same for you and me. The joy we find in his presence is a joy that no one or no thing can take away because nothing, nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ. The joy that ultimately comes from his presence. Again, David understood it. You've made known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Splendor and majesty are before him, wrote the chronicler. Strength and joy where? In his dwelling place. And it's the testimony of so many. John Newton that we heard about uh, last week. Solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. You can't find it, he says, anywhere else. You'll never find it in this world because this joy that is so different from any other kind of joy, this joy that even comes out of pain and suffering is something unique for God's children. You can't find it anywhere else. And so the Korean martyr, the nameless Korean martyr, we don't even know his name, but his words were penned because they moved somebody's heart. Even in his martyrdom, he was able to know this joy and he explains why. He says, you can take away from me my life, but you can never take Christ from my heart. Then the joy that springs from Christ, no one and nothing can take away. 
And we were reminded a few weeks ago, weren't we, about how the Holy Spirit brings the presence of God, the presence of Jesus to us. And we know that the Holy Spirit produces fruit in our lives. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and so it goes on. If the first characteristic of a Christian full of the Holy Spirit is love, the second characteristic is joy. In his presence. And again, you can look wherever you want for this kind of joy. But Augustine, having looked in many places, sums it up how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me, you who are true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You see, joy is not a question of having better circumstances. That's what the world believes, but it's a lie. The world says if you can get all your ducks lined up in a row, you will have joy. You won't have joy. If you get all your ducks lined up in a row, you will have stress and anxiety about keeping all those ducks lined up in a row. Won't you? Have you tried getting your ducks in a row? Haven't you been thrilled when they were all lined up? How long did they stay lined up? Hardly got time to enjoy the moment. This is not a joy about what's going on in the world. It's of an altogether different kind. So we have his principle to grasp and his presence to know and thirdly joy his promise to believe. I'm looking at verses 23 to 27. His promise to believe. And in those verses there is a promise that is centred around a new relationship with God the Father. They had come to know Jesus and they were comfortable with Jesus. They'd got to know him very well and their relationship with him was something that despite its stresses and strains they'd come to know and understand. But now Jesus was leaving them. And Jesus was saying to them, in the way that you have related to me because I am with you, You will now have to relate in that same way to God the Father because I'm not going to be here anymore. In that day, verse 23, you will no longer ask me anything. Why? Because Jesus won't be there for them to ask him anything. I tell you the truth, my Father, though, will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you've not asked for anything in my name. You haven't needed to. I've always been with you. But now I I will no longer be with you. And instead of asking me, you will have to ask the Father. Ask and you will receive, and what will happen? Your joy will be complete. What's so significant here? We don't understand uh, uh, being uh, 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 sort of Christians 2,000 years later quite what it it might have said to those first-time followers. So remember that these first-time followers were Jews. Jews who had been brought up with a huge emphasis on the greatness, the majesty, the unapproachableness of God. God was the eternal creator. He was the other. You couldn't get near him. You couldn't touch him. You couldn't look at him. You couldn't even dare to mention his name or write it down. And Jesus, in these final moments, wants to explain again something he's been trying to explain to them for a long time. That this unapproachable God, that no one could come near, that even Moses could only stand outside of, he is the one, firstly, that you can call Father. Secondly, that you can ask 
things of in exactly the same way as you've been asking things of me. He is the one you can lean on now in exactly the same way as you have been leaning on me. And thirdly, this omniscient, omnipotent God who fills the whole of heaven with his glorious splendor, he's the one that loves you. Verse 27. It might be familiar to us, but to these first century Jews, it was utterly revolutionary. What joy was theirs in these promises to believe that the Father, the unapproachable, so they thought, creator God, would love them, and not only would he love them, but that he would personally not just manage the universe, but also meet their needs. This was big revelation to first century Jews. And so Jesus gate crashes their perception of a distant, unapproachable God. And there's a real play on words here because Jesus' is leaving is via the cross. Jesus says, as I go, you will need to trust the Father. Uh, and as he goes through the cross, he makes it possible for them to trust the Father. And so great verses of faith develop towards the end of the Bible. Since we have confidence now to enter the most holy place, holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. In this new relationship, this asking and receiving from Father God, this knowledge that the God in heaven doesn't just manage the universe, but he meets our needs because he loves us, is the place, verse 24 of John chapter 16, where you find complete, complete, complete joy. And finally, joy is ours because of his position to accept. Yes, this world is troubled, and it produces fruit of a troubled world. It produces fruit of pain and guilt and sorrow and shame. But look where Christ is, verse 28. Christ is the one, he says, I came from the Father and entered the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, I'm the one who was before the world. I'm the one who is way beyond the world, and more still, I am the one that has overcome the world. Which is exactly the reason why in verse 33, we can take heart. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, though, you will have trouble. But hey, take heart, I have overcome the world. Take heart, knowing the peace, not of holidays and retreats. That's the kind of peace we yearn for often, isn't it? I long to get away from it all so that I might be at peace. Jesus never talked about peace like that, although he did agree with the need to get away from it all from time to time. It was a different peace. It was a peace not away from the battle, but a peace in the heat of the battle. Tranquility in the middle of trials, calm in the center of crisis. Take heart. It's the same phrase that Jesus used when he said to the disciples when they were totally stressed out in the boat on the lake when there was that great storm. And he says to them then, take heart. He urged them to display in the midst of the storm this great confidence. Jesus does not promise a bed of roses. He does not say it will all work out because actually he foresees for these first disciples and for us the trouble that lies ahead. As we heard last week, this trouble, in this world, it'll be inevitable. In this world, you will have trouble. But, because he has conquered, we can take courage. 
And because he is victorious, we can be too. Hallelujah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He has overcome the world. And when he hung on the cross, it's not just our personal temptations and our private sins that Jesus conquered. Jesus conquered the world and all its demonic, ungodly forces at work within it. The godless world, this world with its false loves and its false values and its false ideas and its false addictions, this world with its pretensions to domination, its spurious propaganda, its propensity to violence, this world with all its alienation from its good creator, with its hostility to the truth, corruption of righteousness, perversion of justice, it is this world that on Good Friday he has conquered. And so in him shall we. Where does the joy come from? That's exactly where it comes from. And so we discover his principle to grasp, his presence to know, his promise to believe, his position to accept. His joy will be in us and, his, and our joy will be complete. C.S. Lewis has this wonderful phrase, joy is the serious business of heaven. It's almost like a contradiction. Because whatever we think about heaven, we don't think about serious joy. And often when we think about the church and Christians, we think about serious. We certainly don't think about joy. Joy is the serious business of heaven. And you know that song, it, it only had dawned on me yesterday, maybe what that song was about. You know that song, I danced in the morning when the world was begun? Dance, dance, wherever you may be. I am. You know that one? And it talks about, I danced on the Sabbath and I cured the lame, and that was all okay. Then it gets to Good Friday, and it talks about the cross, but it's still dancing. And I thought, what a weird set of images. How, how can it, well, maybe this, the serious joy of heaven, that in the deepest of trials, God is bringing forth his joy, because that's the kind of God he is. We could worship a totally demanding, totally, totally, totalitarian and we do God who wants to keep us miserable and that could be the deal praise God it isn't the deal the serious joy of heaven and William Tyndale understood it William Tyndale was the guy who translated for the first time the Bible into the vernacular into English that ordinary people could understand instead of keeping the Bible locked away so that only people who understood uh, uh, Latin could read it he, he translated it so the ordinary person his vision was that the plowman in the field could read God's word and we killed him for the trouble that he took and he wrote these words Christianity makes a man's heart glad makes him sing and dance and leap for joy. Is that the same Christianity as yours? It's the same Christ. It's the same Christ. A joy that no one will take away. Let's pray.